Mark chapter uh, 11, verse 1 through 11, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, and Mark has been revealing who Jesus is for us. And in this passage, it might be a well-known passage for all of us, and we might find it a little bit strange uh, to, to um, hear about it, especially on Christmas Eve. Um, but I find a lot of parallels in this. Um, it's about coming, arrival, something anticipatory, something we're all longing for. And so that's kind of like where this passage hits us today is about what does it really mean that Jesus has come as king? What does that really mean for us now, here and now, as we wait, wait upon his full glory in his domain of, of uh, restoring all the earth? And so with this in mind, if you're able, can you stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full uh, attention. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them that Je what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. Uh, may he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer? Abba, Father, as we come before you, May the meditations of our hearts and minds be pleasing to you. That as we sit here, may we sit in the midst that our Jesus came in the major to adore him as we just sang. And so let, us, let our worship be pleasing to you in this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys remember Christmas at New Life last year? What it was like? Any of you guys remember? Exactly. There's no memory because it didn't happen last year. There was no worship service. We were sort of in this in-between stage of waiting for a pastor to come. We didn't know whether church would still be around by this time next year. And I was reminded about this at our Christmas party yesterday, uh, that that was the dire, that was the circumstances. And like, 
I, I think it's kind of crazy that we're all just kind of sitting here um, to have this Christmas worship service together, and there's something about it that really makes me happy about it, that God sort of has this sort of sense of humor, that he works in ways that are so unexpected. I didn't plan to come to Fremont. This was not in my life plans. It was not in my blueprint of things. And this, this is not me back being backhanded. I just, I just never planned this out. And yet, that's how the Lord works. So unexpectedly. And yet, when he works unexpectedly, you realize it's something that you needed. You didn't know that you needed. And then, when you let it sink in, you realize it's so undeserved and you're only left with gratitude. I think the frustration about Advent is that it's a lot about waiting, and the frustrations with waiting is that we don't like to wait. It's the fact that we're stuck with uncertainty. What's going to happen? We'd rather be left with bad news and move on with our day than to be left in uncertainty. But the good news of Advent is he doesn't leave us hanging. His ways are truly not like ours. It's unexpected. It's something we didn't realize we needed and so undeserved. But if you can understand his heart, you're thankful. There's gratitude in it. We turn to the triumphal entry because there's such great parallels between Jesus' triumphal entry uh, to take his royal kingdom, his, his throne, and yet there's a parallel with the fact that Jesus came into the world. In both scenarios, unexpected, something we realized we never really needed, something that we didn't realize we needed, undeserved, yet grateful nonetheless that in waiting for him, he shows us what he's actually doing. We're going to reflect on three things here. His glory, the grit, secondly, the grit that that his uh, coming gives to us, and last of all, what does he actually leave us with? What does he actually give? Let's look at the first part, glory. Notice where this Jesus' grand entrance starts. It starts at a place called the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem temple. It's a key detail here because in places like up here, you look at Ezekiel 11, the prophet Ezekiel prophesies that the glory of God's presence will leave his people because of their disobedience. And the glory leaves east of the city and stood on the mountain, the Mount of Olives. For God's presence to leave was a sign of exile. That is the status that God's people are left in. The glory of God's presence has left. They are left in exile, waiting, uncertain what's supposed to happen next. The arrival of Christ in Christmas has this paradoxical uh, effect on all of us because we become acutely aware that we are all exiles not because God has left us, but because there is an even greater longing for us to see his kingdom actually completed. Longing is intensified. And we live in between two advents here. When the first advent, we recognize that Christ has come, but there's a second greater advent, 
we wait for Christ to come as king to restore all things, to reverse the badness that we see in this world to be good again. Whereas Anne Lamott puts it so perfectly, we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. That's us. That's the tension we live in. That's the exile that I'm talking about. We long to see Jesus bring the full kingdom, full picture, a fullness of that. But until then, we live in exile. You know, this feeling of exile, I realize that it's highlighted more than anything when we think about our lives. And I mean this. I've been kind of um, low-key jealous of my bunny these days because my bunny, I feel like this creature lives a really good life because Kathy has been buying all these like rabbit toys and I didn't even realize they, such things exist. She gets uh, freshly, uh, freshly made vegetables, all clean. She, she even cleans it for this bunny. I don't even understand. And like every day, he's got food on the plate, he's got toys, got a house. And like never occurs to this bunny, do you know what a good life you live? Do you understand this? But that's the thing about animals. They have no conception of what a good life means for them. All they care about is that there's food, there's water, and they're out of danger. Who cares what a good life is? But who, you know who really worries about what a good life looks like? Humans. It's the key question we always ask ourselves. Is my life good enough? Doesn't matter whether you live in the slums or the mansions of Ruby Hills, you always ask yourself, is my, is my life good? And yet, what is the evolutionary purpose of asking such a question? I see no purpose in it other than the fact that you and I were image bearers who long for something more, who long to see signs of God's kingdom fully manifested. And I believe that's why we long to see I believe that's why we ask the question, is my life really that good? See, as the glory departed God's people back in Ezekiel 11, another prophet prophesies up here, Zechariah 14, that the day of the Lord would come. And as the day of the Lord would come, guess where it starts from? The Mount of Olives again. That God would restore his glory back onto his people he would visit them. The glory of God's present coming shall visit his people uh, where, uh, in the Mount of Olives, and this triumphal entry starts exactly at the same place to signal that the glory of the Lord has come and he is bringing his people home. It's about homecoming here, that God will not leave us stranded. He will not leave us in our exile state but it'll bring us back home. A couple weeks ago, I, I couldn't find my bunny, Munji, and like for three hours, I spent the whole time looking around the house, and then I got desperate, so I went out. It was night, it was dark, 
and I, I went out with a flashlight and I just called out her name, Manji, Manji, where are you? I'm looking under cars and looking at people's yards. I'm hoping that the cops don't call me. And like in the back of my mind, I think this is so ridiculous. Like I will go after a dog, but not a bunny. But the only reason why is because my kids love this bunny. And the whole time I was just thinking, how am I going to tell the kids that I lost the bunny? I thought about buying another bunny and maybe they won't notice. But I know that they'll notice. The only reason why I care is because they care. And like I, I finally gave up after three hours of trying and I just went up to my uh, upstairs and I, I, just, I just want, I fell asleep in the bed hoping that I'll never wake up. And then Kathy hears this clawing in the garage. And Munji's in there. And I was so annoyed at this bunny, but also happy at the same time that he came home. And I realized, like, God's heart towards us. Like, he just wants to bring us home, and yet all of us are stuck in the garage thinking, like, this is all that there's ever going to be. Like, we settle for much less when God has opened the door to his house all along. That God did something drastic by sending Jesus down to let us know, no, 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 I'm going to bring you home. This is not it. I'm here, I'm with you. You're coming home with me. I get this sense that during the holidays, the most neglected house homes are really nursing homes. Severely neglected. That's why Kathy and I, whenever we make the trip down to Southern California, we, we, we always visit uh, her grandmother because I realize this, that the older you get, the less gifts that come to you, the less Christmas cards you actually receive. Because at a certain point, your friends start to go away. They start dying. And one by one, you lose all those connections. So it's important for me to know, or for, for Kathy's grandma to know, like even if she cannot remember, we're still there. We'll leave the gifts, whether she can use them or not. But just as a sign we haven't forgotten you. Because is this not what Advent is about? That the merciful God of Advent is declaring to all of us, I haven't forgotten about you. I refuse to forget about you. And that he has made room in his kingdom for you. And it's because of this glory that has come, that Christ has come, we can have a little bit of grit in waiting. Second point here. See, when I was in Hawaii uh, for vacation for two weeks, um, the, they started clearing out the streets and people started sitting on the sides and I was asking someone, oh, what, what's, uh, what's going on here? And the person just told me, the stranger just told me, there's gonna be a parade. And I thought, oh, this, it's December. So I was thinking like a Christmas uh, a parade of uh, like Christmas trees and Santa Claus and reindeers. Oh, this might be fun. Kids, sit down. And the parade started. And what came out was a bunch of war veterans and their motorcycles. It's not exactly what I expected. And guess what they rolled up on? They rolled up in uh, these Harley Davidsons and they started revving their engines really loud and old classic muscle cars. And man, those, those engines get super loud and like everyone's just inhaling gasoline. I was like, whoa, what a family-friendly event, right? And like my, but like my daughter is loving it. 
because all the war veterans, they would just smile and wave to her because she's like the only kid there. And she was receiving all this love. I think about this parade that's going on in the triumphal entry. That everyone is expecting Jesus to arrive in a certain way. See, for them, the people of God, they're expecting a war horse because that's what the greatest leaders ride on to declare that he is going to war. He's going to dominate everyone. The people, they expect the king to arrive in, in bedazzling attire of jewelry and just shining with a crown. But Jesus just arrives with a plain old tunic. The people of God, they expect the important people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, all to be lined up to witness Jesus' coming here. None of that happens. Instead, Jesus rolls up on a donkey, on a colt. So unexpected. What I, I was always wondering, what if these war veterans showed up in a Vespa and just honked? Changed the whole vibe of everything. And yet Jesus shows up on a donkey. So unexpected. Where everyone is thinking, what are you thinking? What is Jesus thinking? What is God thinking? Is this not the question that we're constantly asking when God seems to say no to our lives? The plans, the things that we have in store for the future? And yet when we hear a no, we automatically want to ask, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, God? My kids, they've been getting into this game called Monopoly Deal. You guys, you guys ever play? Or well, if you have, it's a great game. And they realize that there's, if you, there's this one card called the Deal Breaker, and they think it's the best card in the deck. And for those of you guys who haven't played, Deal Breaker means that if you strategize the game perfectly, you can steal someone else's property. No questions asked. You bring that deal breaker down, you steal someone's property, and so when my kids, I know when my kids have it because they get all like giggly and stuff, and like, and so like they're, you know, telling me what they have, so Miles, we were playing this game, and one day Miles just pulls out the deal breaker card, he says, ha, deal breaker, and then, and then he's like about to take my property, and like I try to make it more dramatic when he's about to touch my property, and I go, wait, there's another card, just say no which voids all actions. And these rookies don't know that the just say no is the most powerful card in this deck. No is the word of agency. No is the word of conviction. No is to accept our own uh, limitations. To say no means to say yes to something else. And yet, when God says no, it's only because there is a resounding yes found somewhere else. His no's aren't truly no's. They're just yeses waiting to be found somewhere else. This crowd lays down their cloak, and they pave the way for Jesus as a red carpet moment. And as they bring palm branches, it's like them waving their national flags and this is their hope. Listen to their cries here. They say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're crying out for Jesus 
to bring salvation. But when they mention this phrase of kingdom of our father David, they're only thinking about an earthly kingdom. All they want is for Jesus to be a better version of Caesar. All they long, long for is another kingdom like King David's. This is the problem with our desires of the future. We think we know what we want, but really what we think we know what we want is just based on what we know now. We don't know what we want of the future. You can only know when you get there. And that's why we feel so convinced we know what we want, but we really don't. We truly don't know until we get there. Jesus comes on this donkey for a very particular reason here. He's acting out the promise that is given in Genesis 49 up here, where there is a blessed promise that the Lion of Judah figure will bind his donkey to the choice vine to rule over the nations. And when this happens, God will restore peace to everything. Peace on earth. But as you and I take a look at our lives, take a look at the world, we took a, take a look at two wars that are going on, we take a look at the anxieties of our own lives, the troubles that we have, it makes us wonder. It makes us wonder why. What is God doing? What is God doing in the midst of all this? We have a blessed promise but we still live in an cursed world. And yet that's why one of the uh, things about this, uh, the Christmas carols is that one of the lines, they go, a weary, that's why we, uh, we sing as a weary world rejoices. A weary world rejoices. That line hits hard. If you really long for what God is actually promising. Peace on earth everlasting. See, when we first landed in Hawaii, the first thing that we did was we um, got something to eat, we ate loco moco, and then after that, we got shave ice, like tons and tons of shave ice. And then we headed to the beach, that exact order. And that all we had to do was walk over to the, um, to the beach where we're staying at, and like, it, it like, it's like crazy to me to think that paradise is in your backyard and you could just walk there. My kids, they love the water. I feel like they're secret mermaids. They could just spend hours and hours in the water and they're, everyone's just having fun with this uh, beautiful sunset. And my daughter, she asked me to throw in the water, so I do it and she plops down and comes back up. But in the process, she inhales all this salt water and then she starts coughing it all out. And as she coughs, she vomits in the water and it's bright red. So there's no like, you know, you think it's clear, but it's bright red. I'm like, shh, I'm like quickly just dispersing it all and looking around because it's crowded, hoping no one saw. And I'm like, and I'm just thinking, come on, it's not, it's not like she's the only one that vomits in there, you know? Like, what about the sea turtles and stuff? Like, and I'm expecting her, after she threw up, to, uh, to like wail in tears and just be done with everything. But instead of that, she says, Appa, go throw me again. And I throw her again, and she has fun, she keeps swimming. And like, it, I thought, like, the vomit could have derailed everything, but she just wanted to keep going. This is a thing about 
our lives. The vomit of living in a curse-ridden world can derail everything, but it just isn't as compelling as the blessing, as the blessing of being in paradise, at least for my kid. We live in a cursed world full of life's vomit, but not without the promise of God and his blessings for us. See, when the curse and the blessings they meet in the middle, our waiting produces humility. The very grit that allows us to carry on with life's burdens. Jesus rides the beast of burden to show that the lion of Judah, Judah approaches his throne the same way he came into the world in humility that out of everything that God wanted us to understand about his grand entrance into the world is that he is a humble God. He is a humble God. You ever wonder why, though? What does God have to be humble about? He's literally the greatest. He has no other rivals. Why does he have to be humble at all? It just makes you wonder. This is the God that uh, uh, decorated the skies with the stars. He completely dismantled elite armies and brings empires to ruins in just a, a snap of a finger. A God who can literally tame storms. He alone is truly self-sufficient. And yet he comes humble. Yet the cosmic king of the universe decided to become a baby, a baby. Vulnerable that we might learn what it means to be dependent. His infant presence means that we don't have to take ourselves seriously because we are children before God. How often do we take little babies seriously? You only want to laugh at them, uh, laugh with a laugh because they're so cute, how ridiculous, ridiculous they are. And yet that is our childlike selves before God. And as a baby in the most helpless and unproductive state, Jesus shows us how to be loved. Christ became humble to show us what it means to be human. That's why God became humble. Humility is the gift. The kind that you never asked for but you realize you actually need it. And it's essentially the gift that continually gives. Which brings us to the last point here. See, at the end of this parade, Jesus enters the temple, and the custom of when a king was about to be installed and crowned was that the priest would offer a sacrifice in the temple, and then they would crown him as king and declare to everyone, the king has arrived. And like I said before, no priest is in sight, no sacrifice is made, no crown, no recognition, just one silent night. It's the most anticlimactic enthronement ever, but it is the most important part. Jesus leaves this empty scene. In the last verse up here, you, you see that he went up to Bethany with the 12. And this town called Bethany literally translates into house of affliction. 
A sacrifice isn't made here because Jesus is preparing an ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus entered the house of affliction of sin and death so that by faith in him, you and I will be welcomed home. This is what Jesus is doing. A kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, where there are no tears, where all our doubting, our fearing, and our worrying are finally laid to rest. Christ entered a house of affliction so that you might actually have a place home. Who can get on on this? How do you get such an extravagant gift? You come empty-handed. And I don't know about you, this idea of coming empty-handed, it's such an uncomfortable feeling for me, especially during Christmas. I want to know that I have something to give. My kid, he's been wanting to go to uh, Christmas shopping for the first time, and he wanted to use his own allowance. And this kid doesn't have deep pockets, so we took him around, and he's like, uh, we took him to Daiso, you know, something affordable for him. And he's like, he's like constantly asking, oh, how much does it, this, this cost, mom? How much does this cost? And he's like calculating in his head and saying out loud, oh, if I, if I just give up the mechanical pencils, I can buy my cousins this and that. And it's kind of cute, but also like the capitalist in, capitalist in me thinks like, dude, Miles, you don't have to get anything. Like your cousins are fine. Like save your money. And I was like, why do you want to go Christmas shopping so bad? And he's like, well, it gives, me, it gives me warm feelings when I give to my cousins like this. Oh, like, man, I, I feel like such a terrible person when he said that. But I was like, reflecting on the heart of God, like, he gets joy in giving to us. And all we need to do is just come empty-handed. He doesn't need our good works, doesn't need us to perform, doesn't need us to be anything, but to just be empty-handed. Just be. That Jesus makes a sacrifice for us so that all we can do is to embrace him. I read this story of a Catholic writer, and he wrote this fable about the narrative of Christ's birth, and he wrote it in the perspective of the shepherds, of one shepherd in particular. And it goes something like this, that as everyone came to see the baby Jesus all the shepherds, they began to provide their gifts before the king, and, you know, they're, they're bringing out uh, gold coins and, and other stuff, but this one lonely shepherd, he was too poor to bring anything at all, and he felt really ashamed that he had nothing to actually give, and Mary, as she was uh, seeing all these presents and gifts being attributed to Jesus, she held Jesus in her arms, but she, her hands were full, and she looked around and she saw the shepherd with nothing and simply dropped Jesus into his arms. And yet there's a, as the story goes, uh, he was the empty-handed one, and yet the empty-handed one becomes the fortunate one. That's the story of our lives. Of the shepherd, it's just, the story of this is the story of our lives. We're giving something so unexpected that with empty hands, it's unexpected and yet deeply needed. And when you realize this, you realize you're so undeserving. Yet thanks be to God that he remains good on all his promises to us. 
to bring us this child where we have nothing to offer, but he leaves it in our arms anyways. Such is the blessing of Advent, friends. Such is the hope that we have in waiting. Let us never forget it as we continue to wait in hope. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, as we come before you in this world, we've got to have a lot to offer. Whether it's our skills, our ability to be stellar, I don't know, work performance, whatever stuff that we have, talents, gifts that we bring. But before you, God, we come empty-handed. We come helpless. And yet in the act of receiving is your joy to give to us the good news of salvation. Lord, in our season of waiting, in our season of anticipation, we not forget that you cannot forget us. And yet that is the whole point of why you have come down. And as you continue to be with us in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, lead us in our lives. We think we know what we want of the future, but only you truly know. So teach us every day what it means to find our star of David, to lead us and guide us, to know, Lord, you can never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you. Thank you for such a gift undeserved. Thank you for being our God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, in light of the good news, we also want to bring our gifts before God. Um, If you want to give, you can give online uh, through our website or there's an offering box in the back. But the most important part, offering up our hearts unto God for what he has done for us in Christ.